This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for August 2nd, 2019. In this episode, implications of international privacy rules. Some iOS vulnerabilities are found by Google and preparing for iOS 13 and macOS Catalina. Now here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's Chief Security Analyst Josh Long. Coming up to the final stretch, it's early August. Apple has just released the fifth developer beta of macOS 10.15 Catalina. And it's time to start thinking ahead about installing macOS Catalina. And we'll get to that in the second half of the episode. We've got some interesting news, and we've been ragging on Amazon and Google for taking recordings from their home assistant devices and people listening to them and them storing them. And... I just kind of figured that sooner or later we would find out that Apple was doing the same thing. Yeah, and um, we basically got that story (laughs) this past week. Uh, So The Guardian uh, says that Apple contractors are regularly hearing confidential details on Siri recordings. And so they put out this piece with some anonymous sources who supposedly listen to, you know... a, wi- a whistleblower. Yeah, a whistleblower. It was a whistleblower. Right. Who supposedly hear things that come through the Siri system. And just like the others, like we've said the past couple weeks, this is the kind of thing that you should expect happens because they need to be able to test their service. They need to know whether it's working properly. And so from time to time, there's going to be hopefully anonymized. And in Apple's case, they say, yes, this is all anonymized. So nobody can actually know who you are. And that's the thing that wasn't really that clear from the Guardian piece. But Apple responded to the Guardian piece and they said, uh, yeah, except what the Guardian is claiming is that there's potentially confidential details that are being recorded on these Siri recordings But the reality is we're not tying any of this to your Apple ID. We're not tying any of this to your name or anything like that. This is so this idea that we're violating anyone's confidentiality is pretty absurd in Apple's perception. Okay, I'm going to be the devil's advocate here. It's not entirely impossible that they could link it. Apple's saying that they're not and we're assuming that they're not. But we talked about browser fingerprinting in a recent episode. It wouldn't be hard to get a whole bunch of data about a person that's been aggregated and find who they are. But even more, imagine you're listening to someone talking and someone's reading out a phone number, a name, an address. You are getting non-anonymous information. Right, yeah. So if you're giving somebody else's phone number or address, it may not personally identify you, but... What if you're giving your phone (laughs) number? Hey, call me. Here's my phone number. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, and then they have your phone number. Someone can call and find out yeah, who you are. Yeah, this is true. This is a fair point. So although Apple is making the claim that, look, look, this is not confidential information, it really depends on what you're saying when Siri is listening to you, right? So, Okay, you're being an apologist for Big Brother here. So <laughs> I'm going to be the the devil's advocate. I'm going to be the Edward Snowden of the thing. It's really not what you're 
saying. It's the fact that you're being listened to. Here's one of the big problems with Apple and Siri. You have an Apple Watch. Do you have uh, Hey Siri turned on? No, no. I So this is important because this is the difference between using the Siri service only when you know and are intending to use it and when you might accidentally activate it, which is more the concern, I think, with the examples that The Guardian gives. Well, particularly because there is a setting for the Apple Watch where Siri activates if you raise your wrist. Right. You don't even have to say, hey, Siri, sorry if someone's listening on a speaker in their car and their watch just activated because I said, hey, Siri. But um, with the watch, it can go off at any time if you have that setting on. I had that on for a short time, and sometimes when I'm in the kitchen, I'll turn it on so I can set a timer, add something to my shopping list without having to touch my watch because I'm kneading bread dough or something and I don't want to touch my watch. But this is a big difference between um, Apple and Amazon Google who don't have a wearable device. Yeah, I suppose so. Although, I mean, I guess it all depends on your environment, your use case, because some people may have, you know, an Amazon Echo device in several rooms of their house uh, or Google Home device or potentially even, um, you know, a HomePod. Or, you know, they may have multiple HomePods as well. So these are all systems that you can have in multiple places where you may be and you may be saying the wake word if you have that functionality enabled. So it all depends on your use case. But but you make a really good point. And this is why I've always been a, uh, an advocate of making sure to turn off that wake word or in the cases where it's a stationary device to mute the microphone on your device when you're not actively using it. Does it make it less useful or functional? Yeah. I mean, if you're sitting in your cat on your couch and you want to activate your uh, Amazon echo, you don't want to have to get up and go unmute the microphone just so you can turn down the lights if that's what you're using it for. So it's less convenient, but you know, for some people's use cases, I don't think it's necessarily that bad. It, it all depends on how you want to use it. And how we read 1984 not long ago. So <laughs> I'm going to err on the side of caution. Another thing about the Apple Watch, would you hold your wrist up? We're doing this. We're doing this on Skype with video. Now, I notice you have the crown facing your hand. If you notice mine, I have reverse crown. Ah, yeah. Because if I were to put my hand on my desk and lean on it, sometimes my hand would press against the crown and that activates Siri. Oh. So you can switch around the position of the crown in the watch's settings so you can use reverse crown. So the crown is pointing up towards your elbow. Right. So you don't accidentally do that. So even if you don't have Hey Siri turned on, you can accidentally press the Siri button. And that happened to me all the time. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't had that happen to me, but I can I can see how, depending on how close your watch ends up being to your hand, exactly. yeah, I can see how that can right. be. Right, and I wear mine at the bottom of my wrist, so relatively close. Mm. Other people might have it high enough that it wouldn't be a problem. Right. With the Apple Watch, there are all sorts of accidental ways that this can be triggered. And, and for me, I'm actually more concerned about Siri in this case than I am about Amazon Echo and Google Home or even the HomePods. As I've mentioned many times, I have a pair of HomePods in my bedroom, but they're off and I wouldn't use Siri with them. And you're you're more concerned because this is a device that you always have with you. Exactly. Okay. Um, Now I have the settings off, so I don't have to raise to activate Siri, whatever it's called. I have that setting turned off. Mm -hmm. But as I said, sometimes I'll turn it on when I'm in the kitchen and what if I forget to turn it off? Then it's still in a situation where 
it's going to do something. I have my watch set to silent, so I won't hear a sound when Siri comes on. So it's kind of easy for Siri to listen to you um, on the Apple Watch. Anyway, I think people should be aware. They should be aware of what the settings are. If you don't use Siri often on an Apple Watch, set it so you have to press the crown to activate Siri if you don't need to do it hands-free. If you need to do it in your car hands-free, then you need to turn it on either for your watch or if you're using CarPlay on your iPhone. So if you want to call someone when you're driving, for example, you need Hey Siri to be on on your iPhone. Good advice. Yeah, I, I would definitely err on the side of keeping it off if you don't need it. A brief update. We recorded this episode on Thursday, August 1st. It was edited, and on Friday morning when I went to publish it, Apple had just announced that they were suspending this Siri grading program. I'll have a link in the show notes to an article explaining this, and we'll go into more details next week. Okay, so you ever see that little Facebook like button when you're on a different website? And I've always found it weird that a website would want to embed a like button for Facebook on their website. Uh, It turns out that in the European Union, uh, companies that embed the like button on their website must seek users' consent to transfer their personal data to the U.S. And this was a a court decision, uh, the Court of Justice of the European Union. Now, what's the point of that button? You, as a user, why would you click the like button? Just because you go around the Internet and you click all the like buttons everywhere? When it's the Facebook share button, right? you'll create a Facebook post. You've seen something, and this in particular, this is a, a fashion company. So you might want to share that, oh, I just found these really great pair of pants or dress, and you might want to share this with people. But I don't understand about the like button. Yeah, what what makes it so different? I guess the big difference between these buttons is if you hit the share button, then it it gives you the opportunity to create a post. Whereas if you're hitting the like button, it immediately takes some action on the Facebook service which is a different site from the main site that you're looking at at the time. Well, one thing it does is it does show a count, I believe, of the number of people who've liked a thing. And and retailers might want that. In particular, they might hire people to click the like button a lot of times to make it look like a lot of people have liked something. But in any case, if you're signed into Facebook, which you have to be for the like button to work, that means that they are collecting data in the EU and probably sending it to the U.S. And With GDPR and EU data privacy rules, this is something that's going to have to stop. Man, this is this is getting very complicated, isn't it? So you know, you've got all these companies that may, uh, and some could argue, you know, well, we only really do business in the United States, and you know, certainly people from the UK might happen to visit our site, but we're not really. No, no, this was a German company. Okay, this this was a, a case against a German company. Um, so it's not, it's not America. It's not people from the EU visiting us sites. This was a German company. Uh, the thing is that Facebook collects his data and puts it into one big pot where they mix it up. And it's not going to be a specific pot of data for the EU and for the U S which is actually what they're supposed to do now. Interesting. Yeah. So the reason that I bring up the U.S. And, and as I understand GDPR, and I'm certainly not a legal expert and don't know all of the, the details of how, how this works, but um, as I understand it, you have to have kind of a certain maybe percentage of your users who are from the EU or something to that effect uh, in order for some of these rules to apply, or if you're selling products to somebody in the EU. Um, those are some cases where the where GDPR may apply to American companies. 
The Los Angeles Times blocked its website for more than a year, and only recently it became available. Another newspaper, someone posted a thing on Twitter, and I tapped a link on my iPhone to go to another newspaper website, and it said, we're sorry, but because of GDPR, we can't show you this content in the European Union. Uh, so there, there's something more than doing business. There's something about collecting data, period, that I think potentially if the company does want to do business, or let's say they're owned by a bigger company, um, then issues arise. I, I'm not sure about the details, but I have seen a number of websites to simply block you when you're in the EU. I mean, this this is definitely something that gets very complicated, but um, this is not something that I would expect for a company to get fined over just embedding a like button on their page. I I get it, but is it? I don't know. It 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 seems like it's the creeping incrementalism of data collection, and the European Union is reacting against it. And you think that okay, this isn't too bad, and that's not too bad. But when you aggregate all that stuff, I mean, you of all people, you put tape over your camera on your on your computer because you're worried about it. So you of all people should be aware of this sort of these little drips and drops that add up to create a profile. Sure. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this from two perspectives. And obviously from a privacy perspective, I would be super happy if there were never any, you know, Facebook like buttons or any content like that embedded in any web page. In fact, I use browser extensions and add-ons that block those kind of things by default. So I, I really never so see I. Facebook like buttons anyway, when I, whenever I'm in a, a mode where those extensions are active uh, in my private browsing mode, I tend to not have extensions active necessarily just because I actually like to have a mode where uh, some of these things are not getting blocked just, just because sometimes there's certain components of a page that you can't view if something is being blocked. but And and you want to see how other people see the web yeah, sometimes too. Right, right. I guess, I guess, so the takeaway for consumers here is if you, you know, just be aware that these like buttons, yes, they actually are transmitting data. Um, and so you may just want to block them by default, but this is more of a, a story that is of interest to people who run a website that you may not have ever thought that a like putting a like button on your page could be a problem for you. You may want to think twice about that because of yeah. not just GDPR, but there's going to be other laws that are very similar to this in the future in other countries. And, and, you know, even in the United States, you have, laws like this that are getting passed on a per state level. And I mean, yeah. it gets very complicated. And so just try to think privacy minded when you're developing your website. Well, if you care about privacy, you should just not have these things. The only thing I have on my website is a Twitter share button because people do share my articles via Twitter. Uh, I used to have a Facebook share button, but I got rid of that a couple years ago. I had a Google Plus button, remember Google Plus? Oh, yeah. It hasn't been gone long, but <laughs> my thinking there was that if you don't have the button, Google might penalize you in search results. Uh-huh. And, of course, that, that was the sort of extortion that they did to try to get people to present the Google Plus share button. I don't think anyone ever shared any of my stories on Google Plus. But anyway, in other news, there were six serious zero interaction vulnerabilities found in iOS. And it was Google who found these, and I like this zero interaction term. I think that's pretty sexy. Yeah, and and so and, and they say in, in this article on 9 to 5 Mac that one of these vulnerabilities, one of the six is not yet fixed. But you know, this is always really interesting and and the way that Google 
works with companies when they, when, and they have a team of researchers, this is Google project zero, where these researchers are paid by Google to find vulnerabilities in other people's software, not just Google software. It's kind of a bizarre concept because this almost makes Google sound like, you know, one of these governments that's researching vulnerabilities to try to hack into, you know, uh, spy computers or whatever. This is a very like Tom Cruise sounding kind of thing, but it's not. um, So Google's motivations, I I don't know all of their motivations for this, but it is very interesting. And Google will work with companies like Apple when they find some vulnerabilities in their software, they'll contact the company and give them, I believe 90 days uh, to fix the vulnerability before they publish information about the vulnerability. Basically, the and this is very standard across the industry when it comes to security bug reporting. You want to give the company a bit of time, and 90 days is kind of the standard, to fix a serious vulnerability before you start letting users know about it. The reason to let users know, even if it's not fixed, is so that users can be aware that there is a problem. So uh, in any case, yeah, so, so there are five vulnerabilities that Google reported to Apple that Apple has fixed. There is still one that uh, hasn't been completely fixed, according to Google. Um, and so in, in the article, it says details about one of the interactionless vulnerabilities have been kept private. So they are still keeping them private at this point because Apple's iOS 12.4 patch did not completely resolve the bug, um, according to one of these Google Project Zero researchers. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about how it's time to prepare for macOS Catalina. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get 40% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, Parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code PODCAST19 at checkout to save 40%. That's PODCAST19 to save 40% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego. Devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. Okay, so pretty soon we're going to have macOS Catalina 10.15. And while there will be changes in iOS, there's some big changes that are coming up in Catalina that we need to know about. One of the biggest things is the change from 32 to 64-bit apps. And we talked about this about a year ago. Um, We thought it would be good to briefly mention this again because you're going to find some issues with certain apps on your Mac. Well, you might find issues. If you've got apps that are old enough that are still in 32-bit mode, they won't work in Catalina. Now, I think 
Mac OS has been giving us warnings about this for a couple of years. I know that every time I open a 32-bit app for the first time on my Mac now, I get a dialogue warning me that it won't be compatible in the near future. But I've started seeing some of those dialogues again for a couple of apps that I use. So I think there might be something in Mac OS that's reminding people again just in case. Basically, 32-bit apps are older, 64-bit apps are newer, and Apple is not going to support 32-bit apps anymore. Right. So some of the technical details we did talk about on our previous episode, um, as you mentioned. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Right, right. So we won't go into all the details about differences between 32 and 64-bit apps. But the the short version of it is basically 32-bit apps are usually older apps that haven't been updated for a long time. Um, and so the kind of things that you might see, uh, maybe you've got an old version of software that you downloaded once several years ago and you didn't have the auto update functionality turned on. I think, Kirk, you said uh, BB Edit is, is a text editor that you use that where you have that kind of a thing going on. And Yeah, I have an older version of BB Edit. I'm not up to their version 12, and I think it was version 12.1 that went 64 bits. Um, it's not just that you haven't been auto-updating it, but maybe someone bought software and didn't want to pay for a, a paid update. So they're stuck with a version that's a few years old, and if you do use the app, you won't be able to use it anymore. If, it, if it's an app that you downloaded to try out, you used once or twice, just delete it. Um, but if you do use an app and it's too old, you're going to have to pay for an update now. Right. There's another couple of categories of apps that are sort of similar in that they're not native Mac apps. Uh, one of those types of apps is Windows apps that are being run through um, a sort of something sort of like an emulator um, called Wine. Wine actually is a recursive acronym that I believe stands for Wine is not an emulator. Not an emulator, <laughs> yeah. But uh, essentially what Wine does, is it lets you run some simple Windows apps on a Mac. Very, very simple Windows apps. And so far it looks like Wine has not been updated. It also looks like certain apps that relied on the really old X11 framework that use an app. That's old. Yeah. Come on, Josh, It's pretty old, old, but you still can get download X Quartz, and, uh, which is kind of the successor to X11, and you can still run some of these apps. ZenMap is an app that um, you can use to scan devices on your network to find, you know, you can scan a whole IP range. So if you know that, let's say my home network is 192.168.1. whatever, you can scan that whole range and you can find all of the devices that have an IP address on your network and you can get some details about what ports are open and it, it kind of an estimate on what operating system might be installed on those devices. It's kind of useful if you just want to see what you have on your network. If if you haven't really audited it in a while and you've maybe got some IoT devices and things like that. Well, the one category that's hitting me is apps to run scanners. I use a ScanSnap, which is made by Fujitsu, and its software is 32 bits and it's not going to be updated, um, which is surprising because the model in question, the i3000, is one that they still sell. It's the smallest ScanSnap. Um, th these are devices you can put like 20 pages in and it scans them, OCRs them, saves them in PDFs. Wonderful stuff if you want to have a paperless office. Um, they're not going to update the software. They've come out with new software, which is really not very good. And I have a friend who uses this a lot, and he's probably going to use it with a virtual machine in either Parallels or Fusion, whichever he uses, to be able to continue to run it. Uh, I have an Epson photo scanner, which I bought 
just a few months ago and I saw that the software was 32 bits and I called the company and said, yes, we will update before Catalina. Now I can scan with this. The driver works with the image capture app, but I can't use the actual app from Epson, um, which means I have most of the functionality, but it is a bit worrisome that these are devices that are being sold today, whereas the software won't be compatible in a couple of months. Right. So as we mentioned on the previous episode about this topic, you can find out pretty easily if you have apps installed that are 32-bit apps. Uh, essentially, you can go to the Apple menu about this Mac and then system report. And then when you click on applications, you'll get a nice big list of apps and you can sort it by 64-bit. Uh, there's a, a a column for that. So you can have it sorted. So all of your nodes are next to each other and you can look through that list. And if you see something there that you use regularly, or even something that maybe runs in the background, those are things that you might want to look into to see whether you can get an update. Um, one thing that our customers should know if you, if you're a user of Intego virus barrier or other Intego products, make sure that you're running the latest version of them before you upgrade to Catalina. So if you have the latest version of Intego virus barrier X nine or other Intego X nine products, just make sure that you've recently run net update. And once you're updated to the latest version, you won't have a problem with Catalina. I was looking at my list and I just found another one that I hadn't noticed, which isn't updated. It's software for a Spider 5 Pro. This is a device I use to color calibrate my displays. And it's really useful because I do photo work and photo editing and you want the calibration to make sure that your colors match across computers and when you print. And I'll have to check and see if that's going to be updated. The last update was in 2018. I'm very happy to notice that my collection of Mac OS and Mac OS 10 installers is all in 64-bit. Even going back to Lion, which was the first downloadable installer, I think, wasn't it? Because uh, before that, you had to buy the DVDs uh, <laughs> to right. install the operating system, yeah. Right, so I have all the installers. I have Lion, Mountain Lion. I don't remember the exact order. Lion, Mountain Lion, Mojave, Yosemite, Mavericks. No, it went Lion, Mountain Lion, Mavericks, Sierra, High Sierra, El Capitan, Yosemite in there. So anyway, they're all there. Yeah. And I can run them all Close if I enough. want to install an old version of Mac OS X on a computer. Um, one thing, some people may be using Apple's QuickTime 7 because it offers functionality that's not in the new QuickTime player. That's 32-bit and it won't be updated. Ink Server. If anyone remembers the ink um, feature that came out in 2012, which lets you write with a cursor either on trackpads or what do you call those graphics tablets? Yeah, like Wacom tablets. Right. That's not updated. Um, and you may find some other apps if you've got some old apps that you've been using. There, there are a couple of Apple things in here other than that. But anyway, you don't need to worry too much. One thing we'll link to in the show notes, a list that someone posted on GitHub of currently 235 apps that are incompatible with macOS Catalina 10.15. Now, you may have noticed at some point when upgrading your Macs that you get an incompatible software folder at the top level of your drive next to the applications folder, etc. cetera. Uh, these are the applications that uh, macOS is looking for. It's not, it's not looking for specific versions, but it's got a cutoff version number. Um, so, for instance, you'll find a 10.6 virus barrier, which is going to be the cutoff, and the earlier ones won't work and the later ones will. Of course, that's years old. So if you haven't updated your Intego virus barrier since then, you really should update it now. 
I don't think you need to worry too much, but it's interesting to look through some of these apps to see that Apple is actually scanning for these apps. And I don't think these are incompatible because of the 32-bit, 64-bit thing. For example, the Sony Palm 6 Sync driver is certainly 32-bit, but the fact that it's in there, must there must be some reason. Um, I mean, in this case, it's actually a kernel extension, so that that's something that digs into the system. Um, so I, this is just a safety thing to weed out uh, apps that could cause problems, presumably. What's funny to me about this list is that it includes some things that are extremely old. And so like with Catalina, if you're upgrading to Catalina, you have to have a certain version of Mac OS as your minimum in order to even get to upgrade to Catalina. You can't go, for example, from Mac OS 10.9 all the way to 10.15 Catalina. So there are some steps in between if you want to upgrade all the way to Catalina and you happen to have a system that's compatible with all those operating systems in between, which I don't know if there even is something that can run 10.9 and 10.15, but uh, you would have to do a couple of operating system upgrades just to get there. And every time you do one of these upgrades, this it checks against these this incompatible apps list as of that version of Mac OS. And some of these things have been in there for so long that I don't think it's even possible for you to have a system, even if you migrated from another Mac, I don't think it's even possible for some of these things to even ever have been running on your system at the time that you're running the Catalina installer. So it's kind of funny that they're keeping some of these things in there for all eternity, it seems like. But you can you can upgrade a Mac to Catalina if it's, what, 2011 or later? that that's seven operating systems ago. So you might've had something on an old Mac that you pulled out of a closet and you want to try Catalina on it. And this is basically going to, it's going to prevent Catalina from not working is all it is. The, the apps probably won't run because they're 32 bit anyway, but I would assume that if these particularly a lot of these are kernel extensions or bundles that go into the system folders, I think there's just a little bit of worry. So anyway, don't worry too much. But the 3264, if you're going to be updating the Catalina soon, you should check that to make sure that you don't find that software that you need or use regularly is not going to work. I think that's enough for now. We're getting into the dog days of summer. It's getting warm. We're running out of news. We'll always have news. Um, but we'll have a couple more um, deep dive topics before we get to September. And we we should call September the Apple New Year. You know, when they come out with that last presentation of the new features and the new devices and they price them and they announce the ship dates for the operating systems, it's like our 12-month schedule revolves around that as the new year. So until then, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com. <laughs>